Well, last time uh, we were in John's gospel, we studied verses 13 to 22 of chapter 2, uh, where Jesus cleanses the temple. And uh, now we're in 23 to 25, which is the last section of chapter 2, as you can see there. It's a very interesting section. What can strike us uh, as, as a bit strange is present here, just in the way uh, this whole scenario plays out. We're told that people are believing in Jesus, and Jesus doesn't actually respond positively to that. Uh, so that, that seems odd. In fact, uh, it can be a little bit disturbing even to read this, and, and we can be thinking to ourselves, well, I'm believing in Jesus. Uh, I wonder what his response is like toward my own belief. Uh, there can be some consternation that a passage like this stirs up in our hearts. And, uh, and so we're going to give our attention to it today. And actually, as we do, we'll find, as we would expect, that what's here is not, is not truth that leaves us in a place of confusion, but actually a truth that leaves us in a place of great encouragement as we think about not only the significance of the person of Jesus, there's very helpful truth here just about what's true about the person of Jesus, but, but what's here is also helpful as we think through uh, what belief in Jesus really looks like. Um, and so, and so to, to set the tone for this, we'll, we'll work through the context in this way just to open things up. Um, when you started a new job, or maybe you find yourself in some kind of new environment of, of any sort, uh, you usually encounter two, two different types of people, at least two different types of people. Uh, one type of person is the person who doesn't really seem to care so much that you're there now. Right? They, they care even less if you learn your way around and come to understand the dynamics of the place. So you start in somewhere new, and there's that one person who, who, who just goes about their business as usual, not really trying to help you out at all. They, they seem a little bit indifferent to your presence. That's one type of person. Uh, but then in that new place, there's usually one or two people who we're especially grateful for because these are the people who come alongside and make sure that we have a good understanding of how things work around here. Uh, so they're the ones who tell us that, uh, you know, by about three o'clock on Friday afternoon, you don't want to go into the manager's office because they're grumpy. Uh, they're the ones who help us fill out the vacation request forms when the time comes to do that. Uh, these are the people who help us navigate the new dynamics that we're encountering. They make sure that as we engage in that new place, we have the information that we need to, to have things go well and not be overwhelmed by it all. They help us understand how things work around here. And we're very glad for those people. And in studying John's gospel, we actually find that in a literary way, John is one of those helper kinds of people. Uh, as we get into John's account of Jesus' earthly ministry, there's a whole lot of truth that we're given here about Jesus. And in fact, just taken by themselves, the various stories that John includes from Jesus' public earthly ministry might be a bit overwhelming. Uh, we're told so many different things about different people and different groups, different interactions. Uh, Jesus is turning water into wine in the beginning of chapter 2. By the end of chapter 2, he's turning over tables. Uh, we come across people who hate Jesus. We come across people who love Jesus, people who betray Jesus, crowds who just want something from Jesus. There are people who believe in Jesus and he commends them for it. There are people who we're told are believing in Jesus and he turns around and calls them sons of the devil. There's so much going on in John's gospel, it could be overwhelming for us. We could lose a sense of how it all fits together, except that John is one of those individuals who wants to make sure that we understand how things work around here. John is a clarifier. And so as we read through John's gospel, he's regularly inserting narrator comments that not only give direct instruction to us as his readers, 
uh, but the comments also keep us oriented with the main things that will help us make sense of what's going on immediately and what is going to go on as we continue to study through the gospel. And in our verses today, we find those kind of helper verses. Um, so, so just think about this with me for a moment. Uh, on the one hand, from these verses, verses 23 to 25 of chapter 2, John is helping us understand what we need to be clear on if we're going to navigate uh, what's coming up immediately as the gospel continues to unfold. Uh, we have this narrative with uh, Jesus and Nicodemus that's going to come next. So what John is giving us here is helping us think about that well as we get into that uh, situation next in our studies. In fact, there's even a clue that John's trying to help us that way just in the way he writes things and that in the last few uh, verses of chapter 2, we, we, have, we have help because we find John ending his section there, uh, the, the last part of, of chapter 2, by saying, for he himself, that is Jesus, for Jesus knew what was in man. And then how does chapter 3 begin? Now there was a man. So, so we find this literary connection that John's making. Of course, the chapter divisions aren't part of John's original writing. He's just flowing through with his, with his craft. Um, and, and, he's, and he's giving us a clue. We need to know what, what Jesus knows about humanity because we're going to talk about this guy. All right? So there's a clue that all this ties together. We need the truth that's here in a specific sense, just in terms of the context that's going to unfold for us as we continue in our study. Uh, but along with that particular help that we get as we continue just to flow through into the next section here, verses 23 and 25 actually help us make sense of a number of things just in the gospel in general as we're moving through John's gospel more broadly. Uh, because we know John's priority for us as his readers is that we would believe. And we say this regularly. John makes it very explicit in chapter 20, verse 31, that these things were written. Why? Well, so that we as John's readers would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, we would have life in His name. Believing in Jesus is John's priority for us as the reader. So, so along with helping us make sense of what Jesus will be speaking about to Nicodemus in the next section, this passage also helps us make sense of the whole book because what's here actually gives us critical truth about the person of Jesus. It helps us understand who He is, and what's here gives insight particularly into some aspect of the nature of belief in Jesus. Because these are the main things. That by believing in Jesus, we might have life in His name. And so we need to understand His personhood. And we need to understand with accuracy how belief looks. How belief really works in the life of somebody who's coming to find the life that Jesus offers. So in terms of our own process of growing in our love for Christ. Growing in our understanding of what it means to trust in Christ. We need, in particular, these transitional verses this morning because they're much more than just a transition between narrative sections. Uh, John's actually working to make sure we're understanding how things are going to go around here. It's, it's as if he's stopping on a tour and saying, now we just need to make sure we have this clear because we're need to, going to need to come back and revisit this truth in order to help us along the way as we, as we keep going. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to frame these verses uh, simply by this broad heading, this, we're going to just call it our belief and the knowledge of Jesus. That's the, that's the theme of what we're going to discuss today, our belief and the knowledge of Jesus. And to help us work through the study, we're going to do so with three words, uh, knowledge, nature, and need. So the knowledge of Jesus, the nature of belief, and the deep need that we ultimately have as humanity. 
Um, so that will, that will help frame our studies, if that's helpful for you to know from the beginning. Um, so we'll, we'll get into knowledge, nature, and need here. But before we do that, we do need to just take a moment and give a summary of the situation that's recounted for us here in these verses, because it is a little odd. Um, and so if we just give some attention here in kind of a summative way to what's going on, uh, verse 23, we're told that Jesus was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival. And this note on geography and timing is something that doesn't surprise us because in the cleansing of the temple in the last section, we've already been told that the Passover was at hand. So Jesus is in town for the Passover and uh, Jesus has demonstrated, if you remember our study, his passion for the purity of worship in the temple cleansing uh, that, we, that we studied last time. And now the Passover festival, it's, it's been underway. And during this time, John tells us in verse 23 that many believed in Jesus' name when they saw the signs he was doing. Uh, so we remember that signs are important in John's gospel. Uh, the signs Jesus performs are meant to display the glory of who he is, uh, displaying the fact that he's the one full of grace and truth come from God uh, through signs. Jesus puts on display not just the power of God, but also the saving purposes of his own presence uh, as, as the one who's come to save. The signs point to the glories of the person of Christ and the Father's plan to save the world through him. And up to this point in John, we've only been explicitly told about two signs. Uh, Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding, that was a sign. And then... Uh, on, the, on the other end of Jesus cleansing the temple, he references his death and resurrection being a sign. The sign I'm going to give to you is you destroy this temple, meaning my body, meaning his body, John tells us that. And on the third day, it, I'll, I'll raise it up. So there's going to be a sign there in Jesus' cross and resurrection. Now, both have been referenced in that way. However, here in verse 23, we're told that he also performed many other signs, which, which makes sense. When we get to the end of the gospel, where, where John writes to us that Jesus performed many more signs than just the ones recorded in this book. Um, so, so Jesus is performing signs. John doesn't record them all, but it's Passover time. And during this time, Jesus is putting his glory on display by these signs that he's performing. Uh, miracles, as we'd find them in other gospels. Um, and many believed in his name as a result, which sounds very wonderful. People are believing him. That, that, that excites us. And that excites us, the people are believing in him, because we think back to verse 12 of chapter 1, where John told us that those who believe in his name, those who believe in his name, Jesus gives them the right to be children of God. Believe in Jesus, and you become part of God's salvation family. So, so belief or or faith, or trust. We could translate that Greek word in, in those kinds of ways. It's the belief, faith, trust picture given here. Uh, to believe in Jesus means that He applies His redemptive benefits to you. To those who believe in Jesus, He gives them the right to be children of God. You're, you're reconciled to God as His child, ultimately because of Jesus' work on the cross, taking our sins upon Himself, purifying us for redemption, membership in God's family. So here we read that many believed in his name, and that seems like a really good thing because for those who believe in his name, he gives them the right to be children of God. This is exciting. Except that, instead of a positive response to this belief on the part of Jesus, what do we get? We get the exact opposite. Verse 24, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them 
since he knew them all, and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So what's going on here? John 1.12, for all who believe in his name, he gives them the right to become children of God. John 2.23 and 24, they believed, and Jesus did not entrust himself to them. So, so we run through this at, at first pass, it leaves us with some questions. But then again, as we get into things here, we find, like what we already mentioned, we find that rather than being left confused, John is actually giving us a great deal of help with regard to the person of Jesus himself and also what it really means to believe in him. So we'll think through these, these pieces here, tracing three lines through the verses. We've got knowledge, nature, and need. And first of all, we're going to say something about, about knowledge. Uh, in this passage, G, uh, John is clearly giving us truth about Jesus' extremely intimate and complete knowledge of humanity here. Um, and in fact, you notice the three ways that John states this uh, so completely. John says, Jesus knew them all. Now, now, that can immediately make us think Jesus knew them all like he was just acquainted with all these folks, like they were familiar to them. Uh, the ESV, I think, helps us a little bit more with its translation where it says, Jesus knew all people, right? So it's not like Jesus just happens to be acquaintances with these, these folks at the festival. No, Jesus knew all people, and Jesus didn't need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So clearly that the comprehensive and intimate knowledge of Christ is something John is highlighting here. Um, now, we, we know what it is to know people. and In fact, to a certain degree, we can know others Fairly well. We can know others very well. My wife knows me all too well, right? You, you have close friends who you know well, but, but no matter how well we may know someone, we don't ever really know the deepest depths of their personhood. Right? You think of the person who interviews for a position with, with the most amazing resume that's ever been put on the hiring manager's desk, and they come in for that interview with the most amazing resume, and they interview so well in person. They do so well. So you've got the paper, you've got the person, so perfect for the role. But what happens? Well, of course, sometimes they work out and it's, it's a wonderful match. But sometimes we totally miss it and they end up being a disaster hire. Why is that? Well, because we thought we knew them, but we didn't really know them. We, we can know people well. We can even know people really, really, really well. But we can never know people completely. In fact, we don't even know ourselves completely, do we? Listen to this comment made by an author from, from a Christian perspective. He's a clergyman in, in Scotland. He's, he's describing his own consternation about who he is. And just listen to how he puts things. It's actually, I found it very refreshing. So, so he says this. This is my dilemma. I am dust and ashes. Frail, wayward, a set of behavioral responses, riddled with fears, beset with needs, the quintessence of dust, and unto dust I shall return. But there's something else in me, he says. Dust I may be, but troubled dust. Dust that dreams. Dust that has strange premonitions of transfiguration, of a glory in store, a destiny prepared, an inheritance that will one day be my own. So, he says, my life stretches out in a painful dialectic between ashes and glory, between weakness and transfiguration. I am a rebel to myself, an exasperating enigma 
this strange duality of dust and glory. What is he saying? I am an exasperated enigma to myself. I don't get myself. I'm a mystery to me. And we can identify with that. Our knowledge of others and even our knowledge of ourselves is so limited. We know to some degree, but we don't know all the way. Now, what does John tell us here? In three different ways, he tells us Jesus knows all the way. He knows us deep down. In fact, it's very interesting. If you remember how important the the concept, the theme of witnessing is in John's gospel, we talked about that in our introductions to the book. Witnessing is a critical component of John's gospel, these various witnesses to the significance of Christ and his personhood. But guess what? There's one thing in John's gospel where no witness is needed, and we have it here in this passage. Jesus needs no witness to help him know what's in our hearts in verse 25. He did not need anyone to testify. That's the witness word. He did not need anyone to testify about man for he knows. One witness totally unneeded to Jesus about what's in us. He knows us intimately and completely. And so why does this matter? Well, it matters for a couple immediate reasons as we think of the priority of coming to believe in Jesus that John has for us. That re- reason number one uh, is, is that the comprehensive knowledge of Jesus is another indicator of the divinity of Jesus. Okay. Uh, 1 Kings 8.39, God alone knows every human heart. Acts 15, God knows the heart. Romans 8.27, He searches the heart. Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. 1 John 3.20, God is greater than our hearts and He knows all things. Psalm 139, Oh, Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with how many of my ways? All of them. All my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. And speaking about the intimate, exhaustive knowledge of Jesus here, John is affirming again for us the divinity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is fully man, and Jesus is fully God. Which, of course, both of those pieces are central to the fact that we can actually trust in Him to save us, because being fully man, He identifies with us in our humanity. Being fully God, He can bear the weight, that burden of sin that we could never bear. Bear the weight of the sins of all who will believe in Him and pay that price ultimately. He must be man and God. And so John here is affirming that once again for us. And this this doesn't just confirm again the divinity of Jesus, but we're also directly confronted with the intimacy and exhaustive knowledge that Jesus has of each of us. There's just a, a, a confrontation factor represented here. If we're going to believe in Jesus, we need to know this about Him. He has exhaustive knowledge of us. And for some, this is actually off-putting. We don't like to think there's one who's calling me into relationship who knows me this well. I would like to preserve some secret corners of my life, the secret thoughts of my mind, the secret ambitions of my heart, the past stuff that looms like dark clouds at times. I want all that to stay covered and cornered away. I don't don't want to yield to one who knows me so well. I recoil from that. I want distance from that. Some will have that response to Jesus. We actually see that in earthly relationships too, don't we? As they begin to grow more close and more intimate, what happens? Well, that intimacy is something that actually drives them apart. We don't like that. 
So there is that there is that response to Jesus. However, there's the better response, which is the response that leads towards life. And, and it's the response that says, oh, Lord, you know me altogether. And instead of this causing me to run from you, it actually impresses upon me my need to trust in you. Which, if you remember, is exactly what happened to Nathaniel back in John chapter one. Remember John chapter one? Nathaniel is, is, is meeting Jesus. And uh, and he's had this inter- interesting interaction with Philip, and then Philip brings him to Jesus. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said to him, Truly, here's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. There's some, some experience there that Jesus has unique knowledge of. And what's Nathanael's response to the unique knowledge of Jesus? Rabbi, you are the Son of God. <laughs> he believed. So so knowing Jesus knows us even more deeply than we could ever know ourselves also draws us out in belief. And it it does so not only because of the power that's represented just in Jesus' omniscience, the fact He's all-knowing, but it draws us out in belief because of the love that's represented in the fact He knows all things and is unfailingly committed to loving us. Listen to how another writer puts it. He says this, consider this. Jesus died for you knowing the full truth about your wickedness, about your envy and greed and lust and self-serving ambitions. Jesus knows more about your sin and mine than even we will ever know, but he died for us anyway. Isn't that the pardon that we read after the confession from Romans 5 this morning? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and this is how God shows his love for us. So so John's helping us with belief, and, and there's some particular elements to consider in in terms of the unique context of this passage, but we can't miss this. Jesus knows the human heart, and he doesn't just know it generally. He knows us specifically, intimately, completely, exhaustively. The the inner recesses, even of our heart, where belief or unbelief reside, as this passage will show. Those are open and, 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 and plain before him, which again is going to be uh, clear to us as this as this little passage unfolds and then even as we get into further dialogue we have this dialogue with Jesus and the woman at the well in chapter 4 she says she says to Jesus I don't have a husband and what does Jesus say in response he says you've correctly said I don't have a husband for you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband why can he say that well he knows everything about her he knows her and he's come to save It may be that there are corners of your life that you're embarrassed by or even tormented to think of Jesus knowing. And those corners may not be pleasant for sure, but those dark corners are not a hindrance to a saving relationship with Jesus. In fact, those dark corners are the very reason Jesus calls you to himself and offers the salvation that he he alone can provide. Jesus' knowledge is is complete and total. He knows what's in us, and he calls us to come to him and find the rest that he offers. So it's an amazing thing. So Jesus' knowledge, we have have that spoken of generally here by John, Jesus' knowledge. Now we need to say something about the nature of belief. The nature of belief. Um, Remember, it's these two things that are always stuck together in John's gospel. You You have believing In the person of Jesus Christ. We have these truths about the personhood of Jesus. And then these truths about believing. So believing and then who Jesus is. We have these stuck together. So we've talked about who Jesus is a bit. Now we see something about the nature of belief. Um, And and, and as we do, we see that the completeness of Jesus' knowledge is particularly applied to the belief. um, Or actually, to put it more accurately, it's applied to the 
to the disingenuous belief uh, that's there going on in the hearts of the people uh, who, who are there during the Passover. Um, and it actually helps to clarify what's going on here by seeing that, that John has a play on words here in these verses. Uh, we don't see it in our English translations, but, but in the Greek text, there's a play on the word that's translated belief or trust or faith. Uh, so if you look at verse 23, we read that many believed or trusted in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. And then in verse 24, you have the word again, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them. That word entrust is, is rooted in that belief word. So, so we could catch what's going on a little better in English. Maybe if we said something like many trusted in his name, but he did not entrust himself to them. Something like that. The, the idea of this commitment is what's in focus here. And, and we start making sense of this by going back to that chapter 1, verse 12 uh, section where we have the same kind of language. Because you remember there where, where John told us, as many as believed in his name, he gave them the right to be children of God. And we have that same exact language here, believing in his name. All right? Except instead of Jesus committing himself and his benefits to these people, instead he doesn't entrust himself to them. Right? So, so back to chapter 1, verse 12. For those who truly believe in Jesus, he doesn't withhold himself, but shares his family rights. You become a child of God. Here, Jesus withholds himself. Again, so we have to decide what, what, what do we do with this. We need to figure this out. And then a clue to what's going on is that there is a, a heart condition problem on the part of the so-called believers in our section. So the reason Jesus withholds himself from them is because he's seeing what's really going on in their hearts. And while there's some display of belief on the outside because of the signs Jesus has been doing, at the same time he knows the belief is deficient. And, and this, is, this is very important to understand as we read through John because if we don't get this, we'll be very confused by other passages. And quite frankly, we can be very confused in our own Christian life or by the Christian lives of, of others as well. So there's nuance here that's very important and I'll set it out this way. Uh, in, in, in John's gospel, we can say that there are two kinds of of believing. Believing is referred to in two different main big ways. Right? There's genuine believing, like for example the belief of John the Apostle when he's at the empty tomb, or the belief of Thomas after he sees the resurrected Christ. Right? There's complete believing, but as we see here, there's also belief that's deficient. That's what we're dealing with in this section. And, and this deficient believing in John's gospel, if, we're, if we just have these two, we've got genuine belief, we've got deficient belief. In deficient belief, there's actually two subheadings we would need to have. The first subheading under deficient belief is going to be uh, that that is attached to a trajectory of evil, ultimate unbelief. Okay? And, and we get this in places like John chapter 8, where we're told really plainly in John 8, 31, that some Jews were believing in Jesus. And then, by the time we get to verse 45 of chapter 8, their hearts are ultimately exposed and Jesus refers to them as children of the devil. Okay. So they do not have belief that tends toward being a child of God. Their father is the devil. So their believing is spurious, ultimately. It's false. Right? It might have sprouted for a moment, maybe excitable because of the signs Jesus was doing. But for those chapter 8 people, instead of those signs ultimately pointing to the glories of Christ, they simply prove maybe interesting or, or impressive, and their hearts ultimately remained unchanged. So in John, deficient belief can ultimately prove to end in evil unbelief. But that's not always the case with deficient unbelief, deficient belief, right? 
uh, sometimes the deficient belief can also be part of the trajectory toward genuine belief, which you actually see regularly in the lives of the disciples. In fact, we see it depicted to a certain degree just in chapter 2 itself. Because in chapter 2, after Jesus turns the water into wine, we're told his disciples believed in him in verse 11. And then after the whole temple, temple cleansing incident, we're told the disciples didn't believe the scripture and the word Jesus spoke until after he was raised from the dead. Right? So, so there's belief for the disciples, but it's not complete belief. There's this, there's this trajectory going on there. And we see that throughout John's gospel in, in different places. And this is part of why this section is an important connection to the Nicodemus story which comes next. Because different belief is going on with Nicodemus, at least at first. If you just jump ahead to chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus makes, undoubtedly, he makes a belief statement when he says to Jesus, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. That's a belief statement. It's belief to a certain degree. Jesus is doing what he's doing as one sent from God. True. But that's still deficient belief. Nicodemus' statement about Jesus there is the same as any faithful Muslim would make about Jesus. And Jesus is going to work, work on Nicodemus. Right? And, and so here it's this deficient belief that's present within the crowd. Whether it will ultimately end in evil unbelief or maybe some of the crowd will come to truly be trusting in Jesus. We, we don't know that here. Um, Jesus will condemn the crowds later on in chapter 6 after the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, where, he, where he says to them, you seek me not because you saw a sign, but because you had your fill of the loaves. You just like it because your tummy's got full. And presumably that's at least part of what's going on here. Jesus had been performing signs, which a truly believing heart will take as a display of his glory and turn to him in genuine faith. Only that's not the belief of this crowd. Probably they're closer to Nicodemus in the next section who says, we know you're sent from God because of all this amazing stuff you're doing but it's not complete belief. On the outside, it might look like it, but Jesus knows the heart. And that is the, is the central and interesting thing to ponder. In fact, it can be a, a bit of a disturbing thing to ponder. What looks like faith from the outside, enough that John can even use this believing word freely in this passage and others. What looks like faith on the outside may not truly be genuine trust in Jesus existing in our hearts on the inside. In fact, Jesus' own brothers provide quite the example of this in chapter 7. In chapter 7, they're encouraging Jesus to do a whole bunch of signs so that everybody will see how great he is. And John actually tells us they did this because they did not believe in Jesus. They're talking Jesus up, wanting the big signs to be performed, and what's, what's fueling them? As good as it all sounds on the outside, it's actually not belief that's fueling them. What looks like faith on the outside to us may not be true and real and genuine trust in Jesus, and he knows. And that can trouble us if we just have an honest moment here. Because I do things that make it look like I'm believing in Jesus on the outside, and you do things that make it look like you're believing in Jesus on the outside. But I'm with the dust and glory guy who we quoted earlier. I'm an enigma to myself sometimes. I don't, I don't even seem to know me half the time. Am I really believing? Are you really believing? Jesus knows. But, but the question can leave us a bit anxious, can't it? 
The nature of believing can be genuine, but it can also be deficient and still look pretty real from the outside. Which is not so comforting until we realize that John is rightly showing us around the place like that nice person at the new job who's walking us around. John's getting us into his gospel and helping us out because what he's doing here is he's preparing us for John chapter 3. And in the first section of John chapter 3, there is one main thing that Jesus has to say, and it's this. You must be born again. And then this brings us to our final word, knowledge, nature, and now need. Our deep need. So think back again to chapter 1 where John told us about the ones who believe. And because they're believing, Jesus gives them the right to be children of God. Remember how John explained all that. John 1.12 and then 13. I'll read it for us. He says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here's the thing, I would like to be able to say that because I have done X, Y, and Z by the will of man, right? I would like to be able to say that because I've done X, Y, and Z or because I've, I've been like this or because I'm from that background, I'm sure that my believing is true. Because of this in my life, I am sure my believing in Jesus is genuine, but I can't say that and you can't say that. Right? Because believing doesn't begin with me full stop. True believing begins with the new life God gives, born by the will of God not by the will of man. True faith is sourced in the fact that I must be reborn. My heart, the center of who I am, must be remade by God Himself. And that will evidence itself on the outside. Jesus is going to speak to Nicodemus about this. But but it, it bears in mind to say one of the main ways that we can actually be very encouraged about our genuine belief is the fact that we feel the angst of hoping we have genuine belief. For, for the one who's only loud and confident about how fine they are, that's the dangerous spot to be. Right? That's the John 8 spot. Our father's Abraham, we're fine. No big deal, Jesus, we're covered. No, you're not fine, you're not. Jesus says your father's the devil. False faith people don't worry, their faith is false. Quite the opposite, they arrogantly assert that they have it all handled. Thank you very much. For the one who's only loud and confident about how fine they are, that's the dangerous spot. The truly believing heart is a humble heart with even, with even a slight dose of anxiety present. I don't know myself all the way through, but I know I'm not fine. And I don't know you all the way through, but I know you're not fine. And unless the Lord in His grace extends His good news mercy through Jesus and makes my heart new to believe in Him, I am done. And the thing that encourages me is that thinking about him not doing that surgery on my heart terrifies me. I don't know much, but I know without Jesus, I'm totally lost. I have no rights to anything but condemnation. And my joy rests in the fact that God in his grace has chosen to give me a heart that worries for my eternal condition. That's the inside indicator that we've been born again. He's given us a heart that's brought low, recognizing that we are in need of a great Savior. That's why when Jesus tells us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, we don't say, that doesn't sound like a very good program. We say a hearty amen to that. We must be born again to a true faith in the Lord Jesus, and we can't do it. But we can simply take comfort 
that we have been born again, as, as, as we long for that life from God, and as we honestly admit we're terrified of where we would be but for His grace, that's an indicator of a truly renewed heart. Because false faith folks don't worry for their souls. How's that for a sermon ending? Well, and it's just a little better than that. But genuine faith is rooted in a genuine recognition that apart from the glory of Christ and His cross and His resurrection, I'm hopeless. And that recognition is not natural, but one that comes to the one who's born again, who God has made new and is truly believing. And having some angst about the genuineness of my belief is a great comfort because not saved people don't get angsty about stuff like that. And so in this, John is helping us. He's helping us consider that the all-knowing Christ we're called to believe in, and he's helping us think through what real belief looks like. So, so on the one hand, with nuances involved, which we'll get more in chapter 3, we can, we can ask the question, are you worried your faith might not be genuine? Perfect. Right? Because only genuinely faith-filled people worry like that. William Cooper, he, he put this type of angst in, in, into his poetry so well. Listen to, I'll just read you a few of his lyrics and then we'll, we'll, we'll pray. Listen to this. The Lord will happiness divine on contrite heart bestow. So tell me, gracious God, is mine a contrite heart or no? I hear, but seem to hear in vain, insensible as steel. If aught is felt, tis only pain to find I cannot feel. I sometimes think myself inclined to love thee if I could, but often feel another mind, averse to all that's good. My best desires are faint and few. I fain would strive for more, but when I cry, my strength renew, I seem weaker than before. The saints are comforted, I know, and love thy house of prayer. I therefore go where others go, but find no comfort there. Oh, make this heart rejoice or ache. Decide this doubt for me. And if it be not broken, break, and heal it if it be. And then ultimately is our prayer as people who are seeking to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If my heart's not broken, break it. And then heal my heart by the redeeming love of the Lord Jesus. This is what we need. And so John is helping us with this, with much more to come as we think about the Nicodemus situation, the woman at the well. He's preparing us to navigate these instances of believing in Jesus properly. So we thank God for His Word. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that You'd renew our hearts by Your truth and we admit our own frailty. We admit the fact that we can't conjure up genuine faith that must come from You. And We ask that You would infuse our hearts with that this morning. That uh, If it's present, that it would be renewed. If it's not present, that it would, it would come to us, that we would be reborn. Uh, we ask this knowing that the Lord Jesus is powerful to save. He knows us intimately and His love for us is so complete that in his intimate and total knowledge, he gave himself up for us. We rest in the sufficiency of his cross and resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.